Welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Brooke Pearson. Uh, Brooke runs security awareness at Uber, leading a team of uh, technologists there. What does the what do you do at Uber? Yeah, thanks, and thanks for having me, Ryan. Um, we've already given the the formal explanation of what I do, and maybe I can just add a little bit more color. Um, I've been at Uber for the past little over a year, uh, running the security awareness program within our larger information security team. Uh, we call it engineering security at our team. And uh, what we do is we work very closely with our technical counterparts and those who manage security risk for Uber to identify populations that need to receive security training to do their jobs. Also to, from a compliance standpoint, make sure that Uber is fulfilling its responsibilities. Um, so I do that at Uber. Before that, I filled a similar role, uh, slightly you know, more narrow scope at Facebook, uh, where I was from 2016 to, to 2019. And uh, before that, I could tell you, um, Facebook was my first role within tech. Uh, before that, I was a diplomat, and I'm happy to chat with you more about it. Yeah, hold on, if, we'll get to that. We'll get okay. To that. <laughs> uh, th- so your security awareness training work at Uber is internal, it's directed internally? That's right. It's, you know, the teams that I work with most closely are internal communications teams. Um, but for the most part, I, all of my work is internal to Uber. So I deal with employees at Uber. Uh, usually when I'm prepping for these podcasts, I'll go kind of stalk people and look at a bunch of YouTube talks and try to get prepped and so on. But this one I deliberately didn't because you and I had a pre-chat and I, I was really fascinated by your career and your history. So at the age of 13, uh, tell me if I'm getting it right or wrong. At the age of 13, you ended up on a two-week trip to Russia. <laughs> That's right. What on earth is a 13-year-old doing in Russia uh, for two weeks. Is that, was it a family vacation thing? Help me understand that, Paul. Oh my goodness. No, my family had and has, I believe, no interest in going to Russia. Um, you're right. At age 13, I uh, went to a Christian school and uh, for spring break, historically with my family, I'd been going to a place called Pigeon Forge, Tennessee or Gatlinburg, uh, which is a, you know, kind of vacation destination for the South, but I'd been going every year, you know, since I was eight, nine years old, and it was kind of old. Some of my friends at school were talking about this trip they were going to take to teach English in Moscow, Russia. And candidly, I was a kid, right? I had just Wait, watched- wait a second. Some of your friends are talking about go teaching. None of this is adding up for me. So you're, you're a 13-year-old and, and involved in conversations about folks heading to Russia to teach. Like, it, it, Was this through like a school network uh, or through this? How, how did you get looped into that world? No, it's a a good question. So being that I was at a Christian school, um, the school had ties with a Christian organization in Moscow, Russia, called Uh New Generation. So the the goal was to do basically a cross-cultural exchange program and pair us up with students in Moscow, both to learn about the culture and also to share about our culture and, uh, you know, through the language of English. So it was much a cultural exchange as it was teaching English for sure. But this, this is not a normal thing for American kids. I actually have, a, 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 I've worked with Russians for the last 12 years. So I have a very keen understanding of that culture and I'm fascinated by Russians and their, mm, and their cultural too. things. And they send away their kids at eight and nine years old to like three month camps. I have a buddy in, I have a buddy sends his, I think his son is nine years old to soccer camps all over Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such an interesting, different kind of cultural thing where kids are encouraged and allowed to go out there and live and learn. And this experience must have been like an eye opener for you at, at 13 to get out there for one of these cultural experiences, cultural exchange things. Absolutely, it was. And, you know, I, my, I'm African American, my family is black. We, primarily live between the Washington, D.C. area and Louisville, Kentucky. So this was truly abnormal. I had family members who were praying for me. They couldn't understand why I'd want to go to a place. The visions that they had of Russia were very much, you know, reflective of James Bond. Whatever was on CNN, right. (laughs) Yeah, CNN. And, um, you know, I think this the year was 2001. Um, But my mom, she saw that this was going to be an opportunity that would truly broaden my horizons. And so she supported me. She helped me write letters to friends and family members and other church folks to fundraise so that I could purchase my plane ticket to go over there. Um, and to say it was was life changing is is really understating it. I had I had even no idea. even on a two week trip, even on like a life changing trip. from a two week experience. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and maybe I'll, you know, just start with an example. I remember my first time going to Russia, I went to the Russian World War II Museum and I was in there looking at these exhibits and looking at the death In counts. Moscow? In Moscow, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no idea the sheer loss of life that occurred in World War II on the Eastern Front. And, you know, the World War II movies that I'd seen depicted, you know, America coming in and saving the day. But saving I, I Private think, Ryan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really undervaluing the, the role that Russia had in, in um, you know, fighting back against Nazi Germany. And so I'm glad I, you used that story. You know, I was embarrassed to say that how old I was when I realized Russia's contribution to defeating the Nazis. Yeah. It's embarrassing. It is. Yep. It is. And I think it reflects, unfortunately, what we have in the United States. Um, uh, our history books are often said to be, you know, we're chronicling the stories of the winners, but that's not exactly winners true. Winners get right? to write history is the kind of the argument, right? Exactly, exactly. We're, anyway, we're seeing Russia that in the news win, today. But, yep, yep. We're, we're seeing, seeing that, that in the news today with Tulsa and some of the, uh, some of the conversations around uh, um uh, education here in the U.S. about some of some of the darker parts of our own history here. Yeah, absolutely. As as much as I did not learn about Black history as a kid, um, I truly didn't understand anything about international relations or uh, you know international history until I started going on these trips, and it made me wonder. Okay, well, what else don't I know? That set me on my path that I'm on today. So you headed into college knowing that you wanted to do international something to do with international relations or diplomacy, or was that something you stumbled into as well? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, let me see. I, I actually started college at the age of 16. Um, so I did end up graduating pretty early. So I was young trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So and... you were one of those like super bright high school kids. <laughs> Yeah, I know your was, type. <laughs> was is the operative word. I don't know. I feel like I've slowed down or let my peers catch up or something. But uh, no, no, I feel no. like you, you. So you were you were an advanced performer. You were a high performer, high schooler who was ready for college at sixteen. Yes, yes, and um, so you know, a lot of my peers were a couple of years ahead of me, um, and have my international experience. I think really helped me from a variety of perspectives, it showed me kind of cross-culturally that, you know, growing up in a black family in the South was just one perspective among many. Uh, and in college, I, I saw that I had a lot to learn from my peers and from continuing to study abroad. Um, so I had a communications major, which allowed me to, uh, you know, I went and studied in Oxford for a semester my sophomore year and went deep into media and politics And the more that I got engaged in some of the global aspects of communications, the more I realized that diplomacy was really where I wanted to land. But, you know, the only major that was available at that time was political science. And I didn't exactly want to be a politician per se. (laughs) Um, But public service was an interest of mine, and especially from an international perspective. So when I graduated from college, um, I had the opportunity to go on a Fulbright grant and was in Macau, uh, which is a special administrative region of China. Um, And I ended up choosing that because while my first love was Russian, they didn't have the Russian language available the semester that I needed to get my foreign language requirement done. So I ended up studying Mandarin Chinese instead of Russian. Did you learn Russian as well? I learned a little bit of Russian. um, primarily. Can you read Cyrillic? Can you read? I taught myself to read Cyrillic um, as a teenager. And yeah, yeah, it, it enabled me to, you know, build a kind of working familiarity with Russian when I was over there in Russia. Um, but Chinese, once I got to California, which is where I was in college, I could tell that Chinese was another huge language that I needed to learn if I wanted to get serious about doing work in international relations. So uh, I I've, I've have a working knowledge of both. And yeah, um, it... That's nuts to me. I tried to teach myself Cyrillic. I'm I'm fairly proficient reading. Yeah. Um, uh, unless you're unless you practice, you'll never be conversational. It's one of those very very strange um, languages. But I I can I can follow the arc of a conversation. Yeah. And it's one of the most impossible languages. The cases and some of the. Russian and Chinese are both really difficult languages. I think if I could time travel back and have a frank conversation with myself at age sixteen. I would say pick one. (laughs) 
Yeah, but no regrets, right? No regrets. No regrets at all. No, and especially from a cultural standpoint, having you know lived and had cool developmental experiences with both Russia and China as a young person um, really helped me to truly approach my work later as an American diplomat with the level of cultural dexterity that I really needed. It's funny how China and Russia, those two names are front and center of the news today. Let me ask you the question that you just asked yourself. If you could go back at 16 and pick one, do you feel like a choice of specializing in one area would have served you better, would have taken you in a different path? That's a great question. You know, um, I think Russia and China are often, uh, you know, these are great powers. These are truly... Um, you know, paired with the United States, some of the greatest powers of, of our lifetime. So I think from a cultural standpoint, I'm glad that I have familiarity in both. From a language standpoint, however, <laughs> they're both really tough languages and I think are deserving of much more time and effort and study than, than I could give it. Um, but if I were trying to pick now, if I were trying to advise 16-year-old Brooke what to do, um, I might have stuck with Russian uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the Russian language, knowing Cyrillic, knowing the basic, um, you know, sort of sentence constructs and, and grammar, um, it in some ways lends itself a little bit easier if you've studied any Greek, any English. And, uh, you know, given that I'm now find myself in cybersecurity, um, having familiarity with Russian, I think would, would allow me to be the subject matter expert, uh, within this topic. But I have to tell you, both are really helpful in the cybersecurity industry. Interesting. And so you ended up in the State Department. Um, yeah. What, what were you doing there and what was that like? Yeah, the, the State Department, let me see. So uh, let me see, 20, 2008, I uh, started my Fulbright grant in China. While I was over there, the Fulbright program is run by the U.S. Department of State. And as I was trying to figure out, quote unquote, what to do with my life in the midst of a global economic recession, I asked one of the State Department folks who were in Hong Kong if I could shadow them for a day. And, and this is, or when you, you talked about economic crisis, what, 08, we're talking yeah, about uh, yeah. Obama being elected right around that time. Around, right around that time, yeah. I was, I was in China observing what was going on in the United States with the election of Obama with incredible optimism and joy. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to end up probably back in Washington, D.C., which is where I had some family, where I was born. But I wanted to be a part of the beginning of the Obama administration. I knew that. And I was just trying to figure out how to get into the State Department because um, I felt like that was the best place to align some of my passions and my, my um, you know, education and experiences. Uh, of course, it wasn't that easy. <laughs> it is not easy to join the State Department um, as a recent college graduate, even if you do have some language capacity. And that helped. Um, but a lot of people who joined the State Department had work experience, and that ended up becoming a bit of a catch-22. I had limited work experience, um, but also there weren't a lot of jobs. It was the economic crisis. So before I could get to the State Department, there were some unpaid internships. And I know I'm not alone. <laughs> a lot of my peers ended up having to you know, uh, go hat in hand to our parents and say, hey, if you can help me with rent, I've got this unpaid internship that's going to give me the work experience that I need uh, to try to get the job that'll truly pay me and 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 give me that expertise. Uh, but there were a lot of dinners we, that were we happy hours. Yeah. <laughs> can we linger there for a second? Sure. Uh, because this also is a, a not a hot button topic in the industry about whether we should be paying interns or not yeah. taking advantage of kids. Do you have a a little thought on your experience as an unpaid intern. Did you feel that? Did you? It, uh, it's, it's a tough question. I don't want to ask if you felt it, it was abusive, but do you have a thought on 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 whether these big rich tech companies should be doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say, I think between two thousand eight and now, the situation has gotten much better. In DC, where I was, I'm pretty sure that they outlawed unpaid internships uh, shortly after I had mine. So I'm thankful that people after me didn't have to experience Still around that. though. But they're, they're still around. And, you know, um, it's really tough for minority students, many of whom, you know, uh, didn't have a lot of help in paying for college, really reliant on scholarships, 
we really need income in order to truly, you know, be able to stand on our own. And I was lucky that my parents I always say, help, I always but... say the minority high school kid are the best letter writers in the history of time. <laughs> Just writing letters to beg for money. Yeah, I've written a lot of letters <laughs> back in the day with stamps. I, I regularly had to go and buy stamps asking for, for, and then the thank you notes that our parents, yeah. you know, so aptly told us, you know, you better say thank you after they send you this check. Um, but Brooke, imagine, right? Imagine, imagine, uh, you know, you emerging and, and finding this path with really, really strong parenting and, you know, parents who are invested, like you mentioned earlier. Imagine, uh, you know, a peer of yours without uh, uh, maybe some economic backing to help this, without access to the church that offers this, right? Gets just completely lost by the wayside, right? And it's such a sad thing that we're, you know, these opportunities just to, I'm I'm a, I'm a minority as well, but I understand my own I understand my own privilege, and and you understand your own privilege from this, right? Absolutely, and and I think that's what's tough, right? Because a lot of these opportunities are in cities that are very expensive. You know, Washington D.C., the Bay Area, New York, the places where you go to get these these work experiences are often the most expensive places to be. And if you don't have a little bit of help. Um, you will end up working two and maybe three jobs just to try to make that unpaid internship uh, possible just to make ends meet. So no, absolutely. I think unpaid labor of any kind is is morally wrong. And, and I'm glad to see that there's been some legislation to address some of this in many states. But unfortunately, I know it's not universal uh, from state to state. What was the best part of working for the government or the State Department? And what was the worst part of it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you, you tell me all my questions are great. <laughs> well, they are. I mean, and, and it's fun to sort of reflect on. Um, I was so excited once I, you know, moved from my unpaid internship to working for a nonprofit. And then from that nonprofit, I finally got the opportunity to start at the State Department as a contractor, which that was a blessing that I didn't know how big of a blessing it was because I was able to get a security clearance. And as a contractor, um, it was sponsored by the Department of Defense, and it was a little bit faster than through going through the traditional USA jobs process of applying for government jobs. Um, help the help 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 the non DC types understand the importance of having a security clearance and why will, that was crucial. I will do that. So, as a uh, government official, not all, but many government jobs require that you uh, receive a security clearance, which that process involves doing an extensive background check and uh, not just into your finances, but also into every place that you've traveled, your family members. Um, and it's, it's pretty invasive. They will send people to go and in interview your friends and family members to vouch for what, you, what you've said to make sure that you are not a national security threat to the United States. It's a, it's a very important but lengthy vetting process. And um, as a result, because it takes so long, oftentimes the people who are most likely to get government jobs are those who already have that security clearance because it can take up to six months. And many times if a job is posted, well, they needed someone in that job yesterday. So, you know, extending the opportunity to a candidate who doesn't have a security clearance, you know, you might have to wait up to a year to, before you can even get them in their seat. So. Ah. Finding a job that can get you a security clearance is often the best thing you can do for yourself if you're interested in joining a gov the government. Got it. Yeah. And um, but I didn't answer your question. I, I, I want to acknowledge not. that. <laughs> That's why I was mumbling around trying to think about why am I not moving on to my next question? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the best thing, I think, about working for the government is, number one, the opportunity to travel to parts of this world that I never would have dreamed of. I mean, I have passport stamps for Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Um, you know, I've gotten to travel around this world in places that I never would have had the opportunity to go. And that has been truly, truly, truly invaluable. The other thing that is the best thing is that you're surrounded by people who are passionate. Um, you know, government pay is good but not great. And so a lot of times the people that you're working with are doing it because they know it's the right thing to do, to work on they behalf care. of the United States. They care. Um, they, they want to make it so that other cultures can engage with the United States and the United States can truly engage with other countries. 
um, as partners. That's that's why diplomacy for me is was so it spoke really closely to my calling. You know, did you find it? Did you find the the just the scale and the enormity of the U.S. State Department kind of energizing? You you know, you talked about it people with passion. But not only that, the, the scale at which a decision is made and and the implications for millions of people around the world on you know whether it's an aid package here or I, I worked I, I as a as a youngster I worked as a journalist at a local newspaper at a, in Guyana in Georgetown Guyana in a small developing country that relied heavily on you know the State Department and, and the U.S. government to come in and help with all kinds of development programs and. Just the scale at which those decisions affect people yeah. that you will never ever see but understand has to be energizing, right? Absolutely. The the opportunity for impact is really, really energizing. However, and this kind of points to the the downsides potentially of working in government. Sometimes the pace at which you're able to achieve that impact um, will make impatient people really <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> it's true that the bureaucracy is designed to make sure that things don't happen too fast. They want to make sure it's well considered. All the stakeholders have been engaged and, and, you know, the budget process is, you know, you'll end up planning two years in advance for, for, you know, spending a single dollar. Um, so it's definitely some, uh, a career that's best for people who are interested in playing the long game because some of those changes do not come quickly, unfortunately. It does. It does prepare you for life in big companies as well. I work at Intel, and you, a lot of the things you're talking about sounds very much like you know the impact we, the technologies we build today, the impact it is going to be made five, six years down the road, and 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 just being patient and and you know maybe not ever getting to see those headlines one day is it's a pretty weird thing. Uh, but it does prep you for 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 your eventual move to Silicon Valley, and I want to ask about that as well, exactly. There's so many things you're you're fascinating because you have uh, you have viewpoints that I'm very keenly interested in, and one is this, and let's linger right here on this topic while we're here. One is this notion of uh, big processes and big bureaucracies, and you know, government that moves very slow, very small, deliberate pace. Uh, to Silicon Valley, where the, the the mantra is "move fast, break things." We'll apologize later. Just uh, the, the mindset, right? You made that switch. You drove across the country and got to Silicon Valley and got in. I th- your first gig was at Facebook, right? H- how was that dynamic between the just the culture of let's just move fast and break things, not only at Facebook, but throughout Silicon Valley and coming out of that, you know, old, deliberate, parking a cruise ship mindset? Yes. <laughs> no, those are, these are really good metaphors. And, and you're right. I, I, I didn't know when I was making my road trip to move from D.C., uh, to Oakland, California, to to start my role on the public policy team at Facebook at the Menlo Park headquarters. I had no idea just how different of an environment I was I was heading to. Um, you know, one of Facebook's initial uh, you know values was move fast and break things. Literally, there are posters. Uh, we like to call them propaganda posters that are all over Facebook's campus that say things like "done is better than perfect" and move fast, break things. Um, and those weren't just, uh, you know. Oh, they're in the Netflix documentaries. I've said, that's why I brought it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, those are, those are more than mantras. Those are actually marching orders for a lot of people. Um, they do not enjoy deliberating. The, the culture is, you know, you, you're judged on what you can push out in one half. So that's six months, as opposed to the State Department, where we were judged on what we could push out over the course of years. Um, so, you know, I candidly, when I, when I joined Facebook, that was identified as being one of the challenges. They were like, you come from the State Department. We don't know if you really have the ability to, to ship work quickly, to truly execute more than ideate. And so there is that stigma. Oh, absolutely. There was a stigma. And, and I have to tell you, I mean, you know, a lot of tech companies struggle from a diversity standpoint because they don't always value the experiences that people of color bring to the table. Now, I'd been working for the State Department five years. Um, And in environments in Afghanistan, where, of course, we needed to move quickly, we were in a, you know, critical threat country. Um, And so I had a lot of dexterity working in crisis zones. So I I, I knew I could, I was up to the task. Um, And yet the stigma of being a government employee in these public policy team at Facebook uh, really kind of hurt me. But unfortunately, a lot of other black peers of mine had really similar experiences to mine. They didn't 
work in another tech company first because, well, tech companies don't really employ a lot of Black people to begin with. So it was a bit of a catch-22, like your chicken or egg kind of thing where, no, I didn't have tech experience, but I did have really great life experiences that I brought to the table. And luckily, um, I was able to, to express that to the hiring team and was brought on. But um, it was certainly an uphill battle, that's for sure. Yeah. Why, why move to... You sound like you were passionate about uh, the government work. You were passionate about that. You were traveling around the world. Why, why a fascination with heading across the country? What was that decision like? Yeah, well, um, I'll tell you. Salary would be nice. <laughs> you know, initially, initially there wasn't as big of a, a salary pull. Um, I think my job at Facebook paid me only about ten grand more than my my job at the State Department did. So it wasn't. And your rent was probably. Your, your rent <laughs> yeah, my rent got close more. to doubling, which, which really threw me for a loop. So certainly, uh, all things being equal, so, this was. <laughs> so legitimately, it wasn't about the money. No, 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 no. It wasn't about the money. Um, you know, when I was working for the State Department, I was headed to Afghanistan and I had a layover in Doha and I ended up sitting next to another black lady. We were, you know, both single ladies dining solo, but right next to one another. And we ended up striking a conversation and she told me she was in the public policy team at Facebook. So this was wow. back in, this was back in 2014. So this was a chance encounter with someone. This was totally random encounter. Oh and God. okay, so tell me the story. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you because it, it truly was one of those life changing moments. I never would have, I never knew that this layover could bring so much That's crazy. into my life. Um, I never but, meet people on layovers, it's always some guy like <laughs> drooling on my bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it turns out if your headphones end up dying and and you know, you don't have enough music to listen I know, to, I need to just, take the heads off. I need to take the headphones off. Exactly. So exactly. Um, and in, in this case, I met a lady named Debele Okobi, who is the public policy director for Africa, the continent um, at Facebook. At and Facebook. She, she's still there? She's still there. And um, she was one of the, I believe, uh, first black employees on the public policy team at Facebook. Um, and so Ibele, I mean, when she told me she worked at Facebook, I had a million questions for her. You know, at the time, Facebook was trying to promote uh, Internet connectivity and they wanted to bring the Internet to, you know, every person on the world. You know, these super ambitious plans. And that appealed to me a lot because when you talk about impact, yes, at the State Department, I could have big impact. And I did on our foreign policy with Afghanistan. And I got, you know, I wrote words that ended up in President Obama's speeches about U.S. policy towards Afghanistan. But the scale at which Facebook was operating at, with a billion users and climbing at that point. Level. Yeah, it was a whole nother level. And when I thought about the issues that they were wrestling with, I mean, truly, if they were to be successful at bringing internet to every person on this earth, what a difference that would make from a, from a you know, foreign policy standpoint. I was sort of, you know, chomping at the bits to be able to have that much impact. So that's what what really attracted me to Silicon Valley is I thought, okay, how can I truly put forth this vision that I have to connect people across cultures? I can do it, yes, through working at the State Department, but I can also do it through technology. So that's what brought me out here. And you're non-technical. And I'm non-technical. <laughs> Which is also another fascinating part of the conversation around the what we are calling the cybersecurity skills shortage, which is yeah. a, a meme making the round. So we have a massive skills shortage. Yeah. And at the same time, we have tons and tons of kids saying, how can I get into cybersecurity? So yeah. there's there's a there's a little a bit of an imbalance between things there. But you have, uh, you made the transition into tech and grown into tech as a security leader being non-technical. Talk a little bit about uh, what are some of those fields uh, within your organization or some of the places that require things that are not technical? Or, uh, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Help the kids understand that there's like the door is open everywhere. Yes, yes, the doors are open. And, you know, I think part of it is that this is an industry that is changing and evolving so rapidly that chances are that the degree that you get now Let's say you start the degree now and you try to graduate in 2024. By 2024, they'll be calling that industry something slightly different. They'll call that job something slightly different. So for me, it was an activity of translating my experience and learning to translate them. So and which ones? Which ones from your diplomacy like just translated perfectly? And which ones did you struggle to translate? Yeah. 
I think the ones that translated really perfectly uh, were about program management. So my title at the State Department was program officer. And that's a title that is really common throughout government jobs and international development and foreign affairs. But coming to, you know, Silicon Valley, a lot of roles here will say program manager. And if you right. break so it down. So the PM role is the same? It's, it's and, and, and I know PM, some people say PM is related to product management. But when it comes to program management. Program management, right. The, the jobs are very, very similar. Can you, you know, uh, analyze a problem, scope it out? work with stakeholders to execute? And then can you sum up what that impact was, focus on your recommendations for how to move that program to the next level and share that with senior leadership? That's exactly what I did at the State Department. Um, and so changing my, you know, all I needed to do was go into LinkedIn and instead of saying program officer, change that to program manager. And suddenly my skills were 100% overlap with a lot of opportunities in tech. Are you surprised, like I am, and maybe I'm just weird like this, but are you surprised that there aren't more PR, public relations professionals or uh, people who, for instance, in journalism, there's a there's a job shortage for journalists. Mm -hmm. But what you just described there, the communication piece of that, which the, the communicating of, of, of bridging uh, stakeholders and explaining what you do and documenting things just match perfectly with those career shifts. And I don't see a lot of those folks pushing into a program manager role or even product management role because of that com communication piece. And it's mm. just a weird thing. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, gosh, because that's the thing. I initially thought that my skill sets were more aligned on the public policy and communications front. And in some ways, they still are. I'm non-technical. Most of the people on a communications team or a public policy team at most tech companies, those are non-technical people. However, <laughs> um, what I learned pretty quickly, and, and when I was at Facebook on the public policy team, while my job was to be a program manager, I worked directly with our product managers, our product marketing managers, people who were strategizing the building of products, and they really needed my expertise. So mm -hmm. for instance, uh, I worked on the team that created the tool Safety Check, which has now become a pivotal part of Facebook's crisis response products. Um, so that now includes charitable giving, and it includes uh, you know blood donations and some of these things that are really hugely impactful um, especially in the wake of crises around the world. These were really well-meaning people on the product side who didn't quite understand that it was problematic potentially if we turned on safety check for a uh, crisis that unfolds in Europe, but we didn't turn it on for a crisis that unfolded in the Middle East. And, and explain safety check. Safety check is that Facebook thing where if there's an earthquake somewhere, you can go on Facebook and mark yourself safe. That's the thing you're talking about, right? Exactly. Exactly. I'm not and on it, Facebook. I remember it used to be there before I, I, I got off Facebook. Uh, that that decision of turning it on here and not there, that's what? A political kind of minefield you're talking about? <laughs> well, exactly. And yes, you've characterized the, the product in its early stage as well. Um, so... Eventually, those product teams who were very technical realized that they needed some help from a public policy standpoint, from a program management standpoint, and to get feedback from policymakers on how do you prioritize when to turn that product on and off. And of course, eventually they realized you don't decide. <laughs> you need to work really closely with people who are security experts, uh, who monitor issues and crises around the world and allow people to tell you when there is a crisis unfolding that they should be able to notify their friends and family that they're safe from. So we helped guide the product development there, even from a non-technical standpoint, through engaging with policy stakeholders um, to, to make sure that the right perspectives were at the table to begin with. And did you do uh, uh, user education there as well? We did some user education, yeah, but mostly it was focused on um, educating like, you know, first responder organizations, emergency management professionals about how the product worked so that from their Facebook page and products, they could help tell people, you know, if you use the safety check, this is one way to let everyone know, even when, you know, cell towers are down, that you're safe. Because oftentimes that's what will happen, right? If it's a tornado, you can't call your mom, but sometimes your Wi-Fi, you can still update your status, right? So um, that's how Safety Check was born. 
And that's where the opportunities for doing user education, but sort of targeted to those groups that use Facebook was more successful. Yeah, I want us to linger a little bit more on this non-technical and, and some of the other yeah, maybe disciplines or area that lend itself to contributions to cyber. And, you know, we're, we're focusing on program management and maybe some of the comms things. I had uh, Andy Ellis, the chief security officer for Akamai on the podcast, talking about looking in weird places like among nurses and librarians, folks who are very good at documenting things, folks who are very good at, you know, uh, labeling and managing uh, those things. Are there are there some fields that you you know there are some folks that maybe could f- find a path to security? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you a couple areas that I wish I'd known about. Like I wish I knew that these were jobs. So if you're a student, I wish I'd asked the question that way. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Because <laughs> um, I am. I'm once again in the mindset of thinking about 13 year old Brooke and 16 year old Brooke. But right. right. Um, you know. I have degrees in communications and international relations. Um, So a lot of experience with writing and writing succinctly for policymakers. And inevitably, there's a whole lot of jobs in Silicon Valley that will say something like content policy manager or technical writer, um, you know, product marketing managers. These are roles that exist at the touch point between the technical and the non-technical. And they're either trying to translate uh, for external users or internal audiences or to to promote documentation. So that's where a librarian, someone who's really good at making something complex, really simple, those are areas of opportunity for people who have English degrees and and library sciences and um, who are truly experts in making something complex, simple. You bring up a, another point that I gotta linger here a little more on is the just job titles and the way job descriptions are written. Like a lot of folks will see technical uh, technical content, whatever whatever it was you just said, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and it it'll be intimidating to the librarian who will just be you know just these job, job descriptions aren't written in I don't want to use the word inclusive way, but you know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and did, do you find that that still exists? Like a lot of like subtle changes in the way we do job titles, uh, uh, job descriptions, and, you know, just our, our HR folks could make a big difference in attracting more of these. I don't even want to use non-technical light. These important people to our, mm-hmm. our industry. Absolutely. And, and it, I'm, a lot of times we just get caught up in our own jargon, basically, uh, within the technology industry. So, you know, if we say something like TPM, right, that's an acronym for technical program manager. At the end of the day, that person is a program manager who works with technical audiences. And, you know, looking at their resume, while they may not have the acronym TPM on there, what I always try to do as a hiring manager is look at the skill sets that we're looking for. So, okay, is this person organized? Are they good at working with cross-functional partners with a lot of different competing, you know, needs and priorities. Cause if so, that person's probably the perfect person for the job, even if TPM never was on their resume. So if, if you're someone who is looking at a job description and going, wow, I, I'm not quote unquote technical myself, I would encourage you to, you know, do a little research, figure out what exactly it is, the problem that that team is trying to solve. And if you have an idea for how they should solve it, and you think you can execute it, chances are you're, you're qualified for that job. You should throw your name in the ring because um, it may involve just kind of changing around some of the terminology in your resume to match the job description a little better, but you do have those competencies. How could security leaders find more minorities, more folks like you? Well, are they findable? Do you can you find them <laughs> by going and look for them, or you just have to be resigned to them coming to you? I'm just trying to yeah. understand how do we how do we how do we incentivize or how do we encourage the CISOs and the security leaders to find more of you out there? It's it's that's you know, growing up in Washington D.C., um, I have a lot of friends and family, believe it or not, who are in information security. These are black people; they're already in the industry. Uh, many of whom are employed in the government. Um, you know, DC is affectionately known for a long time as Chocolate City, <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's no dearth of professionals. For instance, in, in cities like DC or Atlanta, 
Um, so you had mentors and influences around that you could see. Absolutely. In fact, my mom worked for the VA, the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs government agency, as an information security officer. For really? A good portion of her career. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, so <laughs> but- you have the security in there. I, so I have security in my family. Absolutely. It kind of caught me by surprise when I ended up in a similar industry as my mom after not that being my express intention, you know, as a communications major. Um, but see, here's the thing. There are a lot of people, you know, pe- people of color in this country who have backgrounds that are a perfect overlap with some of the needs within, you know, cybersecurity within the industry. Sometimes though, from a location standpoint, those people are not in Seattle. They're not in San Francisco. And for a variety of reasons, probably don't want to move there. Now, I made an exception, right? I moved across the country and, you know, took this chance. I was relatively young, right? So that made it a little easier to pick up and move. But imagine if I had a, you know, a family. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the discrepancy in cost of living between Atlanta and San Francisco. That's going to mean that my family is now going to have to make do with less. Even if there is a bit of a salary increase, it's not going to make up for the fact that now I don't have as much family to support me from a childcare standpoint. Or, you know, now uh, my ailing family member that's older who needs me, now I have an eight hour flight and two connections to get back to Louisville, Kentucky, for instance, in my case. Right. Um, so those are the things that make it challenging. I think more opportunities for remote work is going to open up some diversity um, from a recruiting standpoint. And then if we're being honest, like the National Society of Black Engineers has been around forever. You know, the International Consortium for Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, they've been around. There are a ton of people who are talented who can probably point to people within their networks who are perfectly qualified for these jobs. Um, they're just not present in the room. Technology. Brooke, have you ever, <laughs> yeah. have you ever stood at the top of the stairs at RSA and watched the the, the parade of suits heading down that escalator? <laughs> I mean, I, I I appreciate your I appreciate your enthusiasm and your 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 I don't know your confidence that yes things are you know there there are opportunities. Come on, I I can count on one hand, I can count on one hand how many uh, black folks I see at the W Hotel Bar. In the middle of RSA, in one hand. <laughs> and, so, yeah. I mean, we are, we are far, 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 far away from having uh, black people in tech or blacks in even cybersecurity. Yeah, no, there's, there's, I, I agree with you 100%. There's a lot of work to do. And yes, I did attend RSA this year. Um, you know, the theme was the human element. You got to so. stand at the top of the escalator and just I, watch it. It's so amazing. <laughs> I should have, I should have spent more time looking at the people watching and less time staring at the app trying to figure out where my next talk was. But you're right. Um, there's, there's a lot of work to do uh, to increase the diversity of, of folks within this industry. I think we got to go find them. I, I keep telling my CISO friends, you, you cannot sit back and wait for some program to bring them to you or some HR initiative. You got to figure out your HR initiative has to go out and find them and figure out the economics of it and figure out these barriers of people can't move. And we got to be more proactive about fixing it or else, or else we'll sit back and we'll, we'll put up some fake numbers in our nice corporate reports and it's not going to be real, you know? Well, a couple things I'll say, and I know RSA has made some efforts to um, have more diverse speakers at their uh, at the conference every year. Um, and I know that they're thinking about moving it out of San Francisco. I, I would be curious to see if you went and stood at the top of the escalator at RSA hosted in Atlanta or hosted in New York or hosted in DC, if you wouldn't see a slightly different group of folks coming up and down those escalators. I think part of it is a location issue, to, to be honest. Um, and part of it is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, uh, of being in Silicon Valley, because Silicon Valley itself, even from a ge- geographic standpoint, is just not that diverse when you're talking black and brown people. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, you know, if RSA is looking for a new home, maybe they should you know, go, go check out Atlanta. Yeah. Why not? My buddy, Paul George down there would be excited to have him. Um, I, I got to ask the, the, the same question about government. What was the best part of moving to Silicon Valley? The one nice surprising thing. And what were the 10 worst parts? 
Mm. <laughs> oh, 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 that's a loaded question. <laughs> I, 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 I am not a fan of the valley at all. I'm not a fan of that whole San Francisco world. The uncanny valley, it's been called, right? Um, okay, best part, I am surrounded by people who are some of the most hardworking and intelligent people I have ever come across. Um, you know, Real for talk. better or for worse, Silicon Valley it's is scary. an upper out. It's, it's scary. It is. <laughs> I mean, I've had to do a lot of things to sort of protect my time, like disabling my notifications on nights and weekends, because my colleagues are working pretty much around the clock. And that is both the best and worst thing at the same time about Silicon Valley. We do not know how to turn it off. Um, you know, I've heard I people bet. say work-life balance is not the goal in Silicon Valley. Work-life integration is. And that's a value I see play out day in and day out. But of course, that's easy. Just wait till they get to my age. I, well, that's the thing. I mean, if you're if you're a caregiver, well, you know, you can't exactly do work 24-7. It's just not feasible. So it ends up creating this environment where the people who can truly thrive are the people who have all the time in the world to stare at their computers and people who And then the expectations shift fail. the expectations shift to the rest of us who can't, right? Exactly. And it's not quite fair. Exactly, exactly. So that's both the best and worst parts of Silicon Valley is the, the work ethic or the work obsession, if you will. So that's a great way to segue into the other question I had for you is being non-technical and some of the stuff we talked about earlier mm. and running into imposter syndromes, because like you mentioned, there's a lot of these hardworking folks in Silicon Valley who are just with so much drive. And on top of that, they're incredibly smart, talented engineers solving incredibly, you know, complex problems. Do you run into this imposter syndrome being non-technical around these crazy technical folks? And how do you cope with that? Because yeah. it's a real thing for, I don't know about you, but for a lot of us. Yeah, no, it's, I, I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't stricken with imposter syndrome at a couple of points every day uh, that I've, that it's I've that bad, right? It's that bad. And, and, you know, <laughs> we could have a whole conversation so, about, uh, you it's know. It's so dumb. I mean, we're you and I are smart enough to sit back and know how ridiculous it is, but you just can't get out of your own head, right? It's, it's, it's It really is difficult to, when you look around and you don't see people who are like, who look like you, who have life experiences like you, and who are constantly sort of challenging you, because that's actually one of the tenets that a lot of these companies operate on is asking tough questions of each other. Um, and you know, that's, that's part of the culture. It's, I think really a good thing for us to have really critical and crucial conversations to, to make sure that we're being honest with ourselves, but imposter syndrome can be really, really tough. If you're a person of color, if you are a female, um, you know, if you are of a certain age and a lot of your, your peers are, are, you know, much younger than you, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it can be really it's crippling. Real. It can it's be really crippling. How can um, how can how can engineers and folks who help to maybe unconsciously help to perpetuate that by not being empathetic or 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 maybe just being in their own world and 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 not not being aware that there's a, a teammate that might be struggling with that is there a is there a is there a, a I don't know is there a way to on the other side help someone cope with it Yeah, you know. If you are someone who um, you either know or you sense that a colleague is battling or struggling with imposter syndrome, I think it's really helpful if you help to elevate that person's successes. I'll give you an example. I like that. Um, you know, I have a uh, former colleague of mine who is also a black female working in cybersecurity, and she's a few years younger than me. She's probably about three or four years out of college now. Um, she does excellent, excellent work. And because of her culture that she comes from, she's also from the islands, <laughs> um, she's not going to, quote unquote, toot her own horn. She's not going to go out of her way to seek credit for the work that she's doing. She's humble. And that, that humility is a virtue in a lot of cultures, a lot of contexts. Uh, and yet, you know, some of her white career male, limiting, right? it, well, unfortunately, some of her white male counterparts in this organization that has been modeled by and driven by white males, well, they encourage people 
to toot their own horn. That can be a really difficult thing if you're someone who has imposter syndrome. So if you really want to be an ally to someone in that space and help lift up one of your colleagues. Help toot their horns. Help them toot their horn. Yeah. Or toot their horn for them. Exactly. Do it on their behalf. I like that. Champion the work that they're doing. Make sure that their work is, is, you know, getting visibility and not just when it's time for performance appraisals, but all the time, because we all know that we need to have a sort of steady drumbeat of wins if we truly want to be taken seriously when it's time for promotion. Listen, we're coming up against the one hour mark and I want to be sensitive to your time, but do you have a few minutes we can banter a bit about uh, uh, user awareness and user awareness training and whether it works or not? I'd love to. This is actually my favorite topic. <laughs> Good. It is mine as well. So I, as a security journalist, I believe it might have been 15 years ago, I wrote an article uh, interviewing Dave Itell. Dave is a, a old school OG, a cybersecurity OG. And he made the argument, it must have been 15 years ago, cybersecurity awareness training doesn't work. It has never worked. It's a waste of money and companies should stop spending money on it. Um, how does it feel to be part of an industry that's just completely useless? <laughs> well, I take issue with the uh, utility of it. I think it's actually very useful. Um, Tell me about your KPIs and some of the metrics you're using to measure uh, usefulness there. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll speak pretty high level here uh, yeah, just for proprietary reasons. But, um, you know, RSA, the theme this year was the human element. And I was so excited to attend for that reason. And I think um, oh, people- You should have st- called me first. Oh, I well. tempered your excitement right away. <laughs> it's still RSA, okay? I, anyway, I'll, I'll tell uh, you, sorry, sorry. Go I'll, ahead. Tell you, I'll tell you what I did appreciate about, about this field and what I appreciate a lot about my peers. Um, you know, I do think that back in the day, a lot of the security awareness work that we did uh, was analyzed in a very qualitative way. It was thought that that was the only way to truly quantify the impact of security awareness was to see, you know, send out a survey. Do people like it? Do they not like it? And then try to draw some loose correlation um, in some of our other key security risk metrics like, okay, if we send out a phishing campaign, how many people clicked on the link? And then trying to draw, you know, some conclusions about the efficacy of that phishing campaign um, based on click rates. My approach and and the way that I, as a security awareness professional, operate is um, we shouldn't be focusing on getting people to not click on a phishing link. That's double negative, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Instead, what we should do is try to get them to recognize what secure behavior is and think to do that sort of proactively. So report it, right? Don't just avoid clicking it. Actually report it so that our security teams can check it out and hopefully mitigate that threat. And, you know, the only way that someone's going to think to do that in that moment, when that subject line pops in their inbox that says, you know, your package has arrived, click here to find out more, (laughs) is for them to, number one, know implicitly that their, their, you know, their radar should be up. They should be going, wait a minute, this this isn't the right That's where your training is. That's where our training is. We have to get it. So you're focusing your training on getting folks not only to not click, but to uh, flag it. Exactly. But in order to train them to do that, it needs to be in the back of their mind. And, you know, there's this excellent book uh, called Made to Stick that uh, I was encouraged to read by a guy named Lance Spitzner over at SANS, um, who heads up their security awareness team there. And he's right about this. If we go and we look at psychology, if we go and we look at behavioral science research, and believe it or not, marketing research, what we know is People are only going to do what they remember to do in that moment. So you've got to train them long before that email arrives in their inbox. And the most effective way to get them to remember is by creating a truly memorable campaign. Now, I work with some really incredible uh, consultants who are actually experts at marketing, and we apply an internal approach to security awareness. So we want something that's fun, right? Like it, it, it needs to be a cartoon. It needs to be viral. It needs to be funny. It needs to be a meme because that's the sort of thing that people remember and then even better share. They'll share with their friends and colleagues. Um, so if you just send something out that's boring, well, they're going to, they're going to delete it. They're going to ignore it. But if it's something that they can't ignore because it's too memorable or too funny, that's when that's going to stick. And that's when you're going to see some real behavior shifts. 
I had um, Masha Sadova, Masha Sadova on the podcast. In the yeah, early days of the Masha's podcast. great. She's, yep. you know, Masha. She's in Oakland. She's in Oakland. She might even be in your neighborhood. Um, and they're working on behavior change, not yes. necessarily security user education, which I, which I think is a really subtle and very interesting approach to modifying user behavior. And one of the things we discussed there was uh, the philosophical issue of punishing folks who fail your phishing test versus uh, incentivizing and celebrating, like you just talked about, celebrating the wins of the folks who are reporting that thing. How do you view that? Because I just saw, uh, I believe it was GitLab, I don't remember the name of the company, posted some results of a phishing test publicly and was naming and shaming, and there was a whole Twitter conversation around. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, Do we need to be naming and shaming folks instead of rewarding good behavior? Where do you... It, it's a really interesting dynamic there. Yeah, no, I'm. <laughs> I believe that Masha um, is. I, I've I've talked with her. She is right on the money when it comes to carrot versus stick. It is much much better to reward someone with a carrot than to punish them with a stick for for bad user behavior when it comes to a stick from a security standpoint. And here's why, um, you know, and I think it's really basic. If we're being honest with ourselves, we go back to elementary school. The teacher that always chastised us, did that really work? I mean, sometimes, but did it cause us to resent that teacher and then not take them as seriously when they were trying to tell, you know, get us to do something else? Absolutely. That's it, a it, great point. You antagonize Because them. you remember your favorite teachers, right? Not the shitty ones. <laughs> exactly. And you remember what they taught you um, as True. opposed to remembering that fear. And we don't want people to operate from a place of fear because, you know, that's, that's not what's going to get us success in the long run. Instead, if people see the benefit to, to joining um, and, and, you know, taking these secure behaviors, it's going to stick and they're more likely to share that with their friends. Their friends will go, hey, how'd you get that, that badge in your profile? Or where'd you get that really cool piece of swag? You tell them, oh, well, you know, I, I did this thing. Now they're going to go and pursue and seek these positive behaviors because of the implicit rewards that they get. Now, Sometimes, I mean, we could talk about this for, for quite a while. I imagine we have some questions. But uh, the last thing I want to say on this topic, though, is um, these rewards don't always have to be uh, tchotchkes. They don't always need to be a sticker, right? Like you can actually say, if you helped your company or your team become more secure, we're going to make sure that this sticker appears in your performance appraisal, in your performance review. review. In your files, right. That's where you're really going to get employees to try to do the right thing. Interesting. But at the same time, Brooke, we've spent close to a gajillion dollars on security awareness training programs as an industry for 20 years. And every time I open the the Verizon DBIR or some new data point or statistics from somewhere, Mm. people are still clicking on phishing links and companies (laughs) are still being compromised by the same old, unsophisticated, basic old PDF attachment in a link. So it's not working. Um, you know, it's, it's, and, and then there's a security tax as well, where it does work. It works in places with companies that could afford to invest in it the right way. And now we've implemented a security tax to the rest of us who can't, Yeah, we'll never get this fixed. We can, we can, we can challenge and talk about this forever. Yeah. I, I hear, here's where, where I think we agree. Um, pursuing security awareness without creating tools that prevent, uh, users from being, being able to be their worst enemy. That's. That's, you know, uh, pissing in the wind. <laughs> Excuse the French. And that's but- Dave's argument, by the way. When Dave says we should just get rid of all security awareness training, he is, his argument is let people click in peace. They should be able to, we should build tools and technologies in place that people should click. If a PDF lands in my inbox and I'm the person who is in charge of opening PDFs, I need to open it. So uh, it's like fix the underlying things. And, and I think you're making a similar point, which is uh, uh, just, Take it out of the hands of the humans and put that button there so that they can report the fish. Make it a lot more easy for people to re- respond to these things. Exactly. And I'm not taking all of the control and, and you know the guilt away from humans, but we have to acknowledge that people are just people. And at the end of the day, they're going to make mistakes. So as, as companies, we need to be investing in tooling. Um, and though that conversation, though, between that tooling and awareness needs to be a one-to-one. I have regular communications with, with our red team, with our, our blue team, so, so our uh, you know, incident response teams and threat response teams, to make sure that whatever the real threats that we're seeing, 
that we're doing targeted user education there. And I think that's where you can truly get, um, you know, you can start to see some traction because the general security awareness is good practice, but where you're going to see real impact is where you're looking at the real threats and then creating customized training modules that speak to those and make those fun and engaging. That's where you're going to see the greatest uh, surface area reduction in security risk. I am going to leave it right there. That ends it on a nice positive note right at the one hour mark. Brooke, will you come back? We got a lot to talk about. There's so much <laughs> we can talk about. We got to we, we gotta see that because I want to, we haven't gotten into uh, measuring it. And how are your measurements? How do you know that your measurements are right? And how do you know and how do you track and make sure you're trending in the right direction? User, edu- user education and user awareness, security education is a, it's a science in itself that I don't think we're we're examining in it in the right way. So come back. Let's 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 um, let's dig into it some more. Uh, I would I would love to, and of course I do have some thoughts on measurement. But but Ryan, I I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to, to come and talk to folks on the podcast today. Um, you know, if there's one thing I can kind of leave folks with, it's you are qualified <laughs> to I love it be in this field. No matter what your background is, there's always something that you can bring to the table. And uh, our technologies will only be as successful as we are in building them for diverse audiences by diverse employees. So I I cannot say enough that, um, you know, as a non-technical person with a diplomacy background, um, cybersecurity is the right place for me. And it is, uh, you know, an opportunity that I would love to see a lot more people get involved in. You're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan.